This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy Woo! and sadness oh. and anger. Ah! Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. Ah! But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. Ah. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. The following podcast contains explicit language. Slate's Audiobook Club is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, a new video learning service with more than 5,000 lectures. As a member of The Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere, on any device. Sign up for a free one-month trial by visiting thegreatcoursesplus.com slash abc. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash abc. And Slate's Audiobook Club is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The message on iTunes. Hi, and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club for the month of November 2015. I'm Katie Waldman, words correspondent at Slate, and I'm joined today in the DC studio by our culture editor, Dan Coyce. Hi. Calling in from New York, we're lucky to have Slate senior editor, Laura Bennett. Hi, Laura. Hi, guys. And our assistant interactives editor, Andrew Kahn. Hey, Andrew. Greetings. It's so great to have all four of us together for this book about a quartet of friends who moved to New York. So today we will be talking about A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara, and the normal rules about spoilers apply. So if you care about spoilers, please pause this podcast, read the book, and come back. See you soon. It's only 700 pages. All right. A Little Life purports to tell the story of four college friends whose lives intertwine over the course of decades spent in and around New York. There is Malcolm, an architect from a wealthy, mixed-race family. Willem, who is handsome and kind and an actor. There is JB, a painter, sharp-tongued, envious, and brilliant. And there is Jude, who is reticent, mysterious, contradictory. I think he's described as terrifyingly talented as a litigator. Um, But in his interpersonal relationships, he's something quite different. His legs and body are scarred from an unspeakable car injury. So I actually do not consider this book to be a Four Friends in New York ensemble novel. I think it is a Jude novel. And yet there is a sense in which it is personality-powered, in which everything that happens to a character, everything he does, seems to flow from some irreducible feature of his being. Yanagihara has assembled these irreducible personalities. And much of the book is about letting their inevitable interactions play out over and over again. So Dan, you have an irreducible personality. Do you agree with any of what I just said? I agree with every word. (laughs) Yes, as you say, the book is at first about these four characters. And then I think that the author, Hanya Yanagihara, has said that she wanted the book to change partway through into a different kind of novel, a novel that you might not expect from the familiar four friends in New York making it in the big city to something darker and weirder. and, And that does, as you say, focus on Jude. And I do think that one of the theses of the novel is that it seems to be a book that agrees fundamentally with a core belief of Jude's, which is that you are who you are. A person cannot change. He even expresses it as a mathematics axiom at one point that X equals X. And 
that goes very counter toward a number of prevailing notions about what a novel ought to be, that it ought to reflect growth or change on the part of a character, that it ought to provide an arc. And in, and where many novels have an arc, this novel sort of just has a downward spiral, right? Hmm. A downward line. A downward yeah. line. Right. Straight down to zero and then continuing downward from there. That is all spe- like especially interesting because... Anna Gihara has said, I forget exactly where, but she said, the reader should in part experience the same terrifying unpredictability and uncontrollability of life and helplessness of life as Jude does. I think she said that on Slate, actually, in our author-editor conversation that we ran. But that struck me as not the experience you have reading this book, that you feel sort of less helpless and susceptible than you do sort of confident in all the book's outcomes that you don't feel sort of buffeted by the forces that buffet all these characters, but that's actually like in sort of the opposite effect. Yeah, that you feel as though once you get the modes that these characters work in, and as Katie said, the way that their fundamental interactions occur, they come to seem familiar to you as they recur over and over and over again. As horrible things happen to Jude and he punishes himself for them, and as other characters feel for him and he apologizes to them. I wanted, Andrew, I know that for your great piece on food in this book, you were doing word counts on various descriptions of food. I also wanted someone to do a word count on just Jude saying, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. like the number of times yeah. that it I must have the same note. Happen. That's so yeah. funny. And so you just do get a sense that they're playing out yeah. these patterns over and over again in worse and worse and worse scenarios. And then for a while, in better and better and better scenarios, but never without the sense that the inevitable trajectory of these people, as I guess all our inevitable trajectories Mm -hmm. are, is toward the end. If there's a twist, there's no twist whatsoever. And Mm -hmm. up until the very, very end, up until the final pages, you don't know what Jude's fate is going to be. And you're not really thinking about the plot and the personalities of the character so much as you're thinking of what is the next move this author is going to make right. that's consistent with the way she's manipulated your emotions up to this point in the book? I found this to be an incredibly engrossing and suspenseful book, even though I knew pretty much what was going to happen. And that seemed sort of incongruous to me. And I was wondering why that was. And I thought maybe it's sort of like watching a Greek tragedy where you see the trajectory as if from a God's eye view and you know what's going to happen. And there's a certain satisfaction and even a catharsis that you take in watching it happen. But I was wondering if you guys, A, had the same experience of being really sort of riveted and compelled by the book and B, had any ideas about why that might be? I think that is a a great point because that's the exact experience I had reading the book also. But on the one hand, I was really frustrated because it gets so repetitive. I mean, there's this one set of interactions the characters keep having over and over again. And it's interesting the book makes equal commitment somehow to both like nature and nurture as formative elements of personality. Like you can't change who you are, but you also have no control over what happens to you. And that's like a pretty frustrating sort of intransigency. But at the same time, the way she dispenses the details of Jude's backstory, so careful and successful. Like it really keeps you waiting for the next pedophile to step onto the Mm -hmm. set. Like it's like incredibly well titrated. On the nature versus nurture question, it's worth mentioning that the novel seems to have a really strange understanding of mental illness as such. There's a moment where Willem asks Andy, Jude's doctor, if Jude is mentally ill. And Andy's answer is that he's not mentally ill. He's just had a lot of bad things happen to him that warped his character. Yep. Mm -hmm. I don't think any doctor would agree with that definition of mental illness. Mental illness can come from circumstances. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but that is true. And that plays 
interestingly with this notion of humans as axioms, right, as axiomatic, that there is a character who in the argument of this novel's most reasonable character, Andy, is a person who changed, but he was warped by people around him and that turned him into the person that he is. But he's unwilling to describe that then as the person that he became. He's unwilling to describe that then as as an illness that he suffers from, but instead he's the cumulative results of the things that people did to him. Right. Yeah, and that was actually something that troubled me about Jude and about all of these characters, about maybe just her method of characterization, is that she seems to pick one quality or one thing and establish that as the core of the person's self. And so Jude... And this isn't to reduce him because he's complicated in his suffering, but he is wholly defined by his suffering and his past. Actually, it's it's almost like he is a saint, like he's perfect. He is incredibly beautiful. He's like the most sort of magnetic of the four of them when JB is making them into works of art. He is a terrifyingly talented litigator who is feared and respected. He is kind. Everyone who meets him, who doesn't abuse him, wants to adopt him or date him. <laughs> so, so on one hand, he's basically perfect. And on the other hand, he is perfect in his suffering. And I guess I felt like those two extremes were linked in the mind of the author, that that she loves him for his saintliness and perfection, but also for the depth of his suffering. And that to me seemed almost like a fetishization of all the things that happened to him, like something about his pain makes him attractive and saintly and pure and beautiful. And uh, that seemed queasy to me. I don't know if you guys had that reaction. Well, that's definitely the thing that makes him appealing as a reader. There's this morbid curiosity as his suffering unfolds and we learn about his past suffering. There are intimations that that's not the quality of his that appeals to the people around him. There's a very moving passage in which Jude and Willem are lying in bed and Jude requires reassurance, and Willem lists all of his qualities, that he's an art collector, that he's a brilliant lawyer. And those that seems to be the suite of qualities that anybody except the reader of this book has access to in Jude. I think that's a good point. And I, Andrew and I had talked a little bit about this earlier, but you know, I think part of what makes Harold a more persuasive and interesting character than the other people who love Jude is not that he's necessarily more persuasive or interesting, or that his boundless empathy is sort of denser and more complicated than everybody else's, but that it's through his eyes that Jude is the most obviously lovable. Like, we're told over and over again that everyone loves Jude, but it's really hard to understand why. But through his trajectory with Harold, we see him as this the brilliant, diligent, sort of humble protege who never expects anything to be handed to him, but who graciously accepts, like, all the kindnesses that are handed to him. You know, he's charming adults at dinner parties, but he seems so unaware of his own capacity to charm people. And he and it's persuasive, whereas, you know, in Willem's eyes, we're supposed to believe he's sort of sexy and funny and quietly charismatic in a lot of ways that we don't quite see. In Andy's eyes, he's God knows what. Andy's not really a full character. The review in the London Review of Books called him something like a vacuum of charisma. Yes, I saw that, too. I think you're right, Laura, that it's through Harold's eyes that these things make the most sense, also because... We see Jude and Harold have a conventional relationship, one with very sharply defined parameters in which they both behave in the traditional ways that people in that relationship behave first. And that's the most extended time we see Jude behaving in that kind of relationship with someone. 
right? We see him, as you say, being a mentee, being a law student, excelling in the classroom, graciously accepting help and getting a job, charming in the job interview by singing, for God's sake, <laughs> and continuing that relationship for years without many of the difficulties of his earlier life and of his accumulated mental illness intruding upon that. Whereas those things intrude upon his relationships with his other friends, at least in the language of this novel and in the structure of this novel, much more immediately. There's much less of a time in which he slots neatly into that group of friends just as one of the gang, right? Whereas with Harold, he he is that person. They fulfill that relationship. And in some ways, I think, well, I wish that the novel had more moments in which we see Jude in not an extremist. In other ways, I sort of think of, well, is that a failure of imagination on my part? That what it takes for me to understand Jude as a person is to f place him in a conventional situation, whereas I'm less willing to make that leap. I'm less willing to see how a person with these many things, quote unquote, wrong with him could be so beloved by other people. You made the point, Dan, that the novel seems to agree with Jude as to the axiom of equality, that people don't really change. And it seems to agree with Jude in other ways, too. And one of those ways is the perception of Jude that we're given. Most of the Jude material is written in a kind of indirect speech that seems to correspond loosely to Jude's own thoughts. We mostly see him from the inside in his own negative self-harming perception. And when we hear about him from other people, they, too, view him as like almost... I mean, I don't want to say inhuman, but it's almost inhuman. It's very different. There's this passage that you made me think of, Andrew. It's on page 359. Um, it's one of the Herald sections, one of the only sections in the book that's in first person. And it's Harold talking, we discover eventually, to Willem at some point in the far future about a time early in his, in his relationship and connection to Jude. And he says, it was the first time I realized that as much as he was two people around us, so were we two people around him. We saw of him what we wanted and allowed ourselves not to see anything else. We were so ill-equipped. Most people are easy. Their unhappinesses are our unhappinesses. Their sorrows are understandable. Their bouts of self-loathing are fast-moving and negotiable. But his were not. We didn't know how to help him because we lacked the imagination needed to diagnose the problems. And over and over again, you get the sense that even his friends, the people who think of him as the most human, still can't understand him as a creature akin to themselves. They can't understand why he does the things he does. He seems to them to be more holy than them or more beautiful than them than is possible and more damaged than is possible. Uh, and that did encourage in me reading the same sense. It encouraged in me a real alienation from that character. And that's something I really wanted to talk to you guys about because I can't figure out if that's intentional, if that's a failure of mine as a reader, and certainly that's been a real split among critics, the way they view Jude, is whether they view Jude as an alienating character who pulls them away from the novel, or whether they embrace him in as representative of their own lives, or as a way of viewing the friends in the novel as real characters through their love of him. All right, now let's take a quick break. Slate's Audio Book Club is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. I'm a big fan of The Great Courses. I love learning about so many things. That's why I'm excited about the new The Great Courses Plus video learning service. The Great Courses Plus has nearly 5,000 video lectures in subjects like history, science, photography, and more. 
They are taught by award-winning professors and experts. With The Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many different lectures as you want at any time from anywhere. Audio Book Club listeners get a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, completely free for one month. I know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus, so sign up now for your free one-month trial. And now back to our show. I think that is a great point that you just raised, Dan, because it's the element of the book that you know I felt most uh, frustrated by, but also compelled by. And I eventually, kind of, to enjoy the book, I had to you know just sort of accept the fact that Jude didn't feel real to me. He was pure idea that he was sort of the freighted, like highly symbolic center that everything else revolved around. And there's this one passage, actually, Christian Lawrenson quoted this too in his LRB article, which was uh, deeply critical of the book. But he says, it's when JB says, like Judy here, we don't know what race he is. We don't know anything about him. Post-sexual, post-racial, post-identity, post-post. And then he gets the nickname, the postman. Which is uh, never used again. Which is never used again. <laughs> right. He gets the nickname and then that's the end of that nickname. And Lorenzen points out that that makes clear his status as more a concept than a character. And I also felt that that was once you sort of accepted that, you stopped being so frustrated with him for failing to act in the ways that a human might act. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a deep question here about whether the novel and its characters are intended to be realistic or whether it is not something that fits into the genre of the realistic novel. Yanagihara has sort of hedged on the question. There's an interview where she said she was trying to meld fairy tales with a naturalistic contemporary novel. A lot of critics have taken it different ways. The New York Times said it seemed almost allegorical. The Atlantic had a piece about it, how it was a high form of melodrama or grand opera, which are both consumed with a certain kind of irony. And there have been many other sort of critical approaches to the book as to whether this is intended to be a real novel about things that can happen to you or a demonstration of concepts in some other mode, such as allegory. And I think that's important as we think about Jude and where he exists on the fairy tale, naturalistic novel spectrum, whether he's supposed to be the little boy who gets tempted by the witch, which is an interpretation that Yanagihara has embraced, or whether he is supposed to be a character in a naturalistic contemporary novel, or whether those two things can successfully be melded. But I think that's part of the reason he feels so remote, because there may not be the intention to make him feel like somebody you actually know in real life with all that complexity. It's interesting the things that Yanagahara said about about how realistic the novel is, right? In her author-editor conversation here on Slate, she had that great line where she said, well, everything that happens to Jude is extremely unlikely, but it's not impossible. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that, that was interesting. Do you guys worry, as I have worried a little bit, that coming away from this book with a sort of fundamentally alienated view of Jude, like an inability to view him as a real person, represents some deficiency of empathy? That is definitely the point that some people have made. Some people really do connect emotionally to him and to this book and to the trauma that he goes through. And there's a piece on Vox that I think has become a somewhat canonical interpretation of this book by a critic named Jeff Chu, in which he very explicitly makes connections between the abuse that Jude suffers in the book and abuse that he, Jeff Chu, suffered in his own childhood. And furthering that point, he specifically accuses critics who do not connect to Jude and who do not feel empathy for his plight as being empathy challenged. 
that if you are a reader who thinks she piles on too many awful things onto Jude, you're betraying in yourself an inability to sympathize or empathize with the trauma that real sufferers of abuse go through. Did you guys worry about that reading this or did you like, cause I definitely rolled my eyes at the incredible piling on of horrible things that happened to Jude. And in fact, to many of the characters and in fact, to me as a reader of this book, but I also worried about that response. Well, I think it makes a difference that this is a fictional book. And when you set out to write a book, these are not real people. You actually are heaping abject horror onto this character. And it's hard to read a fiction and know that someone chose this fate for her character and not sort of wonder what's going on. Like, I think one way that I understood this book best was as almost like a sadomasochistic love affair between the author and Jude, in that she had this sort of adoring, voyeuristic perspective on him. And she loved him for his suffering. And she loved him for his other personal qualities that were all so tied up in his suffering. And I mean, it's not like she is an innocent bystander like Harold or Willem. She is actually making these things happen to him. And that can be a confusing space to be in as a reader because it's arbitrary. It is fiction. If you're making the argument through a novel that everyone's fate is sealed and that, as she has said, that there are some points at which going on with one's life doesn't even make sense, but you are the author of that fate. You are literally the author of that fate. It seems to me to be tilting the scales somewhat in favor of your argument about fate and the axiomatic nature of humanity. I think the idea that certain fictional events in a book should necessitate a specific emotional response in the reader is a species of sentimentalism. And I personally did not find myself evaluating my own level of empathy challengedness (laughs) in reading the book. And I wasn't particularly bothered by that. I mean, certain parts of it made me extremely sad. My sadness and depth of feeling did not make me like myself or the book any better than I would have otherwise. In addition to that, Yana Gahara has stated proudly in interviews that she did no research with real people to write this character. <laughs> she dreamed it up entirely. It is purely fictional. There's no non-fictional component. She didn't interview survivors of abuse. She totally manufactured this scenario. And, you know, I think there are other aims we could talk about besides just the emotional impact that it makes. You don't read the book of Job for empathy or an empathetic reaction or an emotional reaction, but there's a polemic point that's being made in it. And that's sort of more how I experienced this, that these sadnesses were not necessarily real sadnesses with which we are determined to sympathize, but that it's the unfolding of an argument. What's the argument? Uh, well, that's up for grabs, but I think <laughs> there are a few, I think there are a few possibilities. In one interview, she said, this is a thought experiment probing the limits of an experience that would prompt someone to, without blame, commit suicide, which yeah, to me, in some ways, like ties it all up in a bow and, oh, okay, got it. But I'm not sure if that's like a worthy project for a novel. I don't want to dismiss it offhand. It's interesting also that you would bring up the Book of Job because to me, less so than a fairy tale. The book reminded me of a biblical story. It reminded me of... Like a parable? Well, no, it reminded me of like the Old Testament scapegoating customs where you just pick someone to like go out into the desert and starve or something. 
So not like a Jesus parable, but like an Old Testament sort of bleak. Um, and Jude was picked out by Hanya Yanagahara to suffer all the sins of the world yeah. for all the rest of us, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that that would also explain sort of the, the level of adoration that we're supposed to afford him too, if he's sort of a savior figure. On the one hand, I accepted the fact that Jude was never going to feel quite like a character to me, and spent a lot of time trying to sort of position myself in the idolatrous perspective of his friends and sort of wondering what I wasn't understanding about him and feeling alienated and exhausted by his, oh man, those the cutting scenes. Oh, something else I'd love to hear you guys' yeah. thoughts on because they were so difficult to read and relentless and re so repetitive. I skipped some of them or I yeah. skimmed over some of them. But why were they difficult painful. to read if you didn't think of him as a real person? Well, first of all, the anatomical specificity was very difficult to read as a human who has, has a body, skin. has skin, exactly. Yeah. So those are very difficult to read. And then on the one hand, the little character details that were afforded about Jude really stuck out. Like, this is so small, but when Willem wheeled him off to bed when he was in pain after a dinner party and he let his fingers trail after him theatrically, does anyone else remember that yeah. tiny detail? It struck me because it was a personality detail. Like, I was like, would, was Jude a person who would ha be hammy even in such a hmm. tiny way? It just seemed like suddenly I wanted to open the window more and figure out what other things Jude might do as a human being. But it was swiftly closed. Did you guys find any of the other characters more present, like Willem or JB or Malcolm? I found Harold, Harold. pretty present. I think I found characters most present when we were given things about them that didn't have to do specifically with Jude, honestly. Mm -hmm. Like Harold... Uh, as dire as the section about his lost child was, and as unhappy as I was to get... <laughs> so I don't even know if you remember this, but in the novel, Jude gets thrown down the emergency stairs by Caleb, and then it immediately cuts to a Herald chapter in which it becomes immediately clear that we are about to hear how his kid died. Yes, yes. I and I, re oh, I wrote yeah. in the margins, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> but as dire as that moment was... That connected me to Harold in a real way because it was a completely separate and comprehensible tragedy that he suffered. I felt closest to Willem, not in his dotings over Jude, but in the section at the beginning about Henning. Like mm -hmm. those things, the moments in which we were with characters for parts of their lives that didn't have to do with Jude felt the most real to me. And that's why the book felt progressively less real as it became more about Jude, as JB and his art career fell out of the story, as Malcolm and his architecture career and his parents fell out of the story, as those things faded away and the book narrowed its laser focus onto Jude and Willem and then just to Jude, it became to feel more and more unreal to me. Yeah, and especially as those other characters come back in sort of minute ways. Malcolm, for instance, is present for about the first 50 pages of the book, and then we never hear from him again in that voice. There's no other Malcolm-focused chapter besides right. the one that introduces him. And yet we do get little bulletins from Malcolm World as mm -hmm. the novel progresses. We learn that he gets married. We learn about his career escalation. Then he dies. Then he dies at the end. And... It feels totally manipulative because you don't care about Malcolm yeah, at this point. Yeah. When you hear that Citizen and Rhodes have died at the end of the book, Laura and I were talking about this before. When you hear that those people have died, you don't care. That just feels like a piling on of disaster and a manipulation. Also, Andy died. I don't even remember who those guys are. What happened to the Henry Youngs? Did they make it the through? The Henry Youngs. They survived, I think. Phew. <laughs> Thank, God. Thank God. I'm team black Henry Young. What about you guys? Uh, Asian Henry Young <laughs> right. till I die. All right. yeah. <laughs> 
I ride for Agent Henry Young. I want to ask you guys a question about the title. What do you think it means? I have the right answer when you guys I all say too. your wrong answers. I, I have the right answer Shit. as well. We're all very smart. Okay. Andrew, give you a right answer okay. first. Um, well, I, I think it has a few meanings. I think I'm going to give a, a small list of possible meanings. <laughs> One of those is that Jude's life is literally small in terms of temporal duration. It is a small life. It is a short life. Another is that he sees his sphere of influence on the world as extremely restricted and is trying to – he's collecting small pleasures when he's at his happiest. And that's another sense in which his life is small. It's not ambitious. His ambitions are small. His ambitions are to be happy in a mundane way. The saddest meaning that occurred to me was that it seems to echo the instructions that Jude is given oh, during right prostitution. Yep. Yeah. He's supposed to show – I don't think it's the exact words, a little life. Yes, yes it, it is. is. It is. It is exactly the right. Life. Ready? Yeah. Page 417. <laughs> it's tiring work growing. And I know you work hard. This is Brother Luke talking to Jude. But Jude, when you're with your clients, you have to show a little life. They're paying oh, to be with you, you know. You have to show them you're enjoying it. So that yep. made me QED. feel terrible mm -hmm. when I realized that. And it also made me wonder if we are meant to understand all the happiness in Jude's life, all the friendships that he goes through, the love that he feels – the happy years, if we were meant to understand them all, and by extension, all the happy things in all our lives as a show we put on to get through the times when life is fucking us against our will. One more important data and point make, in this. Oh, are you going to talk about and, oh, I, are we, the cover? I was going to say, and yeah. to give life its money worth while it fucks us over. Right, right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's nice. That's a yeah. very good idea. So yeah, that cover, Laura, I always assumed that it was someone crying, but in fact... It is a man orgasming. Yes, it is. A, orgasmic man. It, it is orgasmic man, a photo, yep. as the jacket tells us, by uh, Peter Huhar, Hujar. I don't know how he pronounces, how the photographer pronounces his name. But yes, yeah, so that's potent as well. I mean, it's a great cover. It's a great cover image. And it plays with a lot of the things that are going on in the novel. But that disparity between crying and orgasming is pretty ripe for a novel w with that title. When I bought yeah. the book, I assumed that the title could be a reference to parties, like the life of the party. And what it ends up being is so distant from that, that it's really sad. Andrew, you mentioned, and this is something you wrote about, you mentioned collecting small pleasures as sort of this book's vision of happiness. And I think in your piece, you make the point that maybe the author's failure of imagination is in trying to figure out what happiness could mean for Jude or for anyone. So I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about that. The book has a lot of really sad events and scenarios, sad things that could happen to people. And those things are sad and they make the reader feel sad. But for me, what's ultimately the saddest thing is that there's no point at which the author really successfully imagines what a happy life could look like in depth. Instead of some actual measure of happiness, of well-being, there's a series of small pleasures in the book. I love small pleasures as much as the next guy, but in the face of Jude's trauma, small pleasures aren't going to balance the scales. There's a point pretty late in the book where Jude is teaching Harold to cook. And he says, 
that cooking is a matter of chemistry and not philosophy. I think that resonates very strongly with the way that happiness is portrayed in the book. The author is not concerned with philosophizing about what is to make a person happy and what is to make them sad. Instead, we get a kind of chemical, empirical account of happiness. This has also been called an atheist book, which I agree with. We get this sort of chemical accumulation of atoms of happiness that never really add up to a whole concept. We get these atoms, these small pleasures that ultimately can't satisfy the gaping lack and repetition and redundancy of Jude's life. I don't know that I 100% agree with that. I agree that in most of the book, any happiness that many of the characters feel does have to do with those small pleasures. But I also think that there is one philosophy at play in the book that felt fresh and, and coherent to me. And that was a philosophy of friendship. Like it does seem to me that this book ties real human happiness very closely to friendship and that it does have a coherent notion of what friendship ought to be. It's actually one that Jude elucidates. It is on page 210, um, and it's Jude talking to Felix, the kid who he tutors, who then later is in a punk band, and then later becomes like a securities, securities guy. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyways, Felix is a teenager, and he's having a lot of trouble making, or maybe he's even younger, he's having a lot of trouble making friends, and Jude talks to him about it. And he says, you won't understand what I mean now, but someday you will. The only trick of friendship, I think, is to find people who are better than you are. Not smarter, not cooler, but kinder and more generous and more forgiving. And then to appreciate them for what they can teach you and to try to listen to them when they tell you something about yourself, no matter how bad or good it might be. And to trust them, which is the hardest thing of all, but the best as well. Now, there's a lot going on there. Part of it has to do with Jude's bad self-image. And of course, he views these people as better than him. Part of it also has to do with the bitter irony we will determine later on as it becomes clear that Jude is unable to follow his rules of good friendship. He's unable to accept the good things that people tell him about himself. But it also is very true of all the friends in this book, even the ones who fall by the wayside. They all truly or, or untruly believe the others to be better than them in some way. They believe them to have something that they themselves lack, and they believe that to be intrinsic to their friendship. They believe JB to have the ambition that they lack. They believe Malcolm to have the security and calmness that they lack. They believe Willem to have the goodness that they lack or Jude to have the brilliance that they lack, and that ties them together. And I thought that this was actually a pretty moving view of what friendship could be. And the book makes a real case for friendship in the end being more important to these characters and by extension to human life and relationships than love affairs, for example. It was as if friendship is completion, whereas sex and romance is gratification. And you would much rather be restored and whole than you would be titillated or given pleasure. Right. And sex, of course, for several characters in this book isn't even really pleasurable mm, at all. It's traumatic. Yeah, and it's it's tied to the moment I mentioned earlier where, where Willem is speaking with Jude in bed and gives this litany of qualities to Jude that we haven't really experienced as readers, but that Willem clearly sees in him as his best qualities. For me, that's the moment of the book where the concept of a self is most anchored. Jude's self is located in Willem, who can mm -hmm. give it back to him when he is most despondent. Let's take another quick break. Slate's Audio Book Club is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. 
I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. And now back to our show. Can we talk a little bit? I know there's that Atlantic article that discusses mm. this book as a great mm. gay novel. <laughs> so to what extent do you guys find this to be a novel about gayness or a novel Andrew that has, has on this. You know, I got a important things to say about gayness? So I think, well, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> That piece in The Atlantic was very confusing and kind of ludicrous, I thought. The starting point of the piece, which is worth mentioning, is an essay that was published in Salon in 2013 by Daniel Daddario about what a great gay novel would look like. The argument of that essay is that we don't have enough ambitious novels about the dating life of specific gay people. He also implies in the article that that novel won't happen until a gay person writes it. He doesn't say that directly, but those are two important points that he makes. Now, the argument of the piece in The Atlantic, in its strongest form, is not that this is a book about the experience of gay people, contemporarily or historically. The subheading calls it a chronicle of gay experience. That's not true, but I'm not going to blame him for the subheading. But the strongest point that that piece makes is that we should approach the book with a specific kind of queer irony. Uh, Greenwell, who wrote the piece, Garth Greenwell, classifies it as something akin to a grand opera or a melodrama or sentimental fiction and bills it, therefore, as an exponent of these queer aesthetic modes, as he calls them. So a few points to make. It is definitely not the great gay novel in the sense that the piece in Salon was asking for, which is fine, but it doesn't answer that call. That piece was looking for a historically specific novel about the experiences of gay people. This book is totally ahistorical. There is not a single date mentioned. There are no years. There are no decades. It spans decades, but takes yeah. place in 2013. There are no gay communities. It has nothing about the resources of which gay people have availed themselves throughout the history of gay people. There is no gay culture. There is no communal gay experience in any sense. So it doesn't answer that call. Maybe it answers the call for a novel that employs certain modes of queer aesthetics. Maybe you could argue that it's campy. To that, I would say that gives the book way too much credit for irony. I find it really serious and somber. Maybe part of the reason for that is that the jokes that appear in the book, the actual jokes are generally very unfunny. <laughs> this doesn't strike me as having any kind of humor or self-undermining grandiosity in the way that a grand opera or sentimental fiction in the sense in which he's using it 
might. And then finally, that kind of novel, the melodramatic, sentimental grand opera novel, that kind of art has been made. It's called grand opera and sentimental fiction and melodrama. It exists as those things, and it exists in novel form with novels like The Well of Loneliness that have been around for 100 years. Did you guys notice that the opening of this book is possibly a gay joke? I will elaborate. Let's, let's Jude and Willem are moving into Lisbonard Street. Jude says there's only one closet. <laughs> and Willem says, that's okay. I have nothing to put in it anyway. When I saw that, mm. I was like, maybe something sly is going on. Those guys game. are going to have really bad sex in 600 Those guys, <laughs> exactly. All right, but that was not a response to Andrew's very carefully considered uh, spiel. A spiel. So, Andrew, I think I viewed this Atlantic piece slightly more charitably than you, possibly because I know the worlds that you know less well than you do. I ended up feeling like, like a queer lens was a really interesting way to view this novel and certainly helped me make sense of it in ways that I hadn't been able to before. I also thought the specific resonance that Greenwell pointed out of the communities of helpmates and saints in a way that came around in the AIDS crisis in the late 80s and early 90s really rang a bell for me. Like that was the best description of why of an analogous human experience to the sainthood of Jude and the way that people took care of him for years and years that I hadn't previously thought of. And I thought that was really interesting. But I wanted to raise, in response to that, another lens through which to view this, which comes about as a result of something that I, and I'm sure you guys noticed about this book, which is that it basically has no women at all. There's the social worker who almost helps Jude but then dies, and Harold has a wife, but whatever, we don't care about right. her. Yeah. If this novel, if all basically all the same things happened in this book that happened to these guys, but these were four women, what kind of book would this be and how would people respond to it? Oh, God, people would throw it in rivers and tear it up and decry it as melodramatic and hysterical. And I, I can't imagine. I think it would get a really terrible critical response um, that it would seem self-indulgent. I also I mean, my personal theory, which I've already shared and which is kind of probably crazy accounts for the lack of women because if the author is in love with Jude and doesn't want anyone else to experience him in that way and it's a sadomasochistic love letter to Jude, then that is why there are no women. She's that's, a woman. That's an awesome, but, awesome um, psych awesome psych job, <laughs> Hania. Uh, what do you guys think up there in New York? Oh, I think that is really I mean it's it's a tough it's a tough leap to make just because it's so hard to imagine what this book would look like with all female protagonists because so much of it is playing with the sort of macho-ness and anti-macho-ness and stoicism and what that means. And what I mean, I feel like a lot of it sort of relies on uh, ideas about being a man and being masculine. So That's it's it? hard to me imagine what those would be replaced with. Yeah, I mean, I— There's an interview where she talks right. about— Oh, really? There's an yeah. interview where she talks about men and women, and she gives a really explicit answer, and it's kind of gross. I don't have it in front of me, but she uses the phrase fundamentally limited to refer to the emotional capacities oh. of men. Uh, oh. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Of men. Yeah. Huh. That was her New York Magazine piece, right? That was about— It's an interview in electric literature. She oh, that said one. something yeah, yeah. similar yeah. elsewhere— I'm going to find the exact quote if you give me two seconds. We will it's give you really two seconds. Quote. We're all going to pause what we're doing. We're going to look awkwardly pause. at each other. Yeah. I will say that the art okay. on that Atlantic here's, piece is fantastic. Here's what the author says about men. 
As a writer, it's a great gift and an interesting challenge to write about a group of people who are fundamentally limited in this way, parenthesis, and who happen to be half the world's population, end parenthesis. Male friendship, by which I mean a friendship between two men, is by its very nature different in scope and breadth than the one between two women or between a woman and a man. Do you think that what she perceives as the stoicism of men is a way to draw out how horrible what happened to Jude was? You know, if you can have someone like Jude or someone like Willem crying and cutting themselves and things like these sort of emotionally limited creatures driven to such extremes, then it must be really, really bad. Do you, right. I mean, is that the idea? I don't know. I mean, I think you don't need to go the extra mile to make it seem really, really bad what happens to Jude. Another thing I would say is that if this were a book starring or featuring women at its center and the protagonist had a sexual abuse backstory, there would have to be probably like an older man abusing her. And they wouldn't have the same freightedness of he wouldn't she wouldn't be able to sort of conflate the close female friendships in her life with that abuse in the same way. And so that makes it a little bit hard to sort of translate in my head. I also want to know why she says it's a gift to write about those people. In what sense is it a gift to write about emotionally, fundamentally limited people? That's a great question. Is that question. puzzling to me only? Okay. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Like, what does it offer you as a writer to write about people who you believe to have a lower level of emotional sensitivity than you yourself do? Well, perhaps it's just the challenge. To clarify a little bit, she's talking, she's not talking exactly about emotional sensitivity. You couldn't tell from the passage I read, but she's talking about capacities for emotional expression and being able to express things to other people. Oh, sure. I guess that's true. Although I would argue that, I mean, Willem's an actor. <laughs> well, I would also argue that these characters over the course of this book do a lot more talking about their emotions than almost any actual man I know. Right. And more than, say, I do. Or other <laughs> women I know. Uh, Harold is the character who expresses himself, I, his emotions with the most like sensitivity and warmth and in a way that, I mean, the rest of them are, well, I, I mean, they spend a lot of time talking about their emotions, but Harold does it the most sort of appealingly. One of the points that I was trying to make is I thought an interesting way to read this book is essentially as like an old-fashioned women's novel. As a like a weepy, basically. I mean, it even mm -hmm. ends with like the main character killing himself in a baroque and ornate and frankly unbelievable way. But like <laughs> when I embraced that aspect of it, when I embraced the piling on of misfortune and the out of left field death of Willem when we <laughs> thought nothing when we knew something was going to go wrong, but we assumed it would be with Jude, right? Like the piling on of circumstance and the willingness to put characters not just through a ringer, but through like ringer after ringer after ringer after ringer did feel like a very traditional kind of of weepy, quote unquote, women's novel in an interesting way. And when you put men in that framework, mm -hmm. it does create a lot of tensions due to, I guess, their fundamentally limited emotional nature. <laughs> it also means that it becomes – that it gets responded to in a different way. I mean, I do appreciate the subversion of replacing women with men in this case. But I think maybe this also circles back to why I had trouble with the book in the first place. There's something glamorizing about these noble, ethereal, suffering characters, especially in the tradition of – you know, tubercular women. and But in that tradition, the suffering of the protagonist is made sort of beautiful and idealized. And I felt that the same thing was happening with Jude. And it, again, weirded me out. What did you guys make of the fact that the only one who survived from that quartet was JB? Like if you asked me, 
a third of the way into the book, who's going to be the one of them to the survive? I would have said, oh, it'll be JB because he, he's the He's like the one selfish one. Yeah. yeah. Did it um, bother any of you that they all became fabulously successful and rich? <laughs> I mean, it's part of this mythological world. Yeah. Yeah, I guess <laughs> yeah. that's if true. If you take it as a fable yeah. with temptations and great successes and palaces and kings and tragedies, then it sort of makes sense. Yeah. I don't know if you should take it as a fable. But well, do. the car, I mean, the sort of the symbolic placement of the car at the beginning and the end. So he is maimed by this car injury, and then it's the car that takes Willem out of his life. Mm-hmm. So the car is like, I think I was talking to you, Laura, about this. Yeah. It's not the deus ex machina. It's just the machina. That <laughs> <laughs> right. As the Italians would say. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Did you guys like this book? As Katie asked early in this conversation, which I never answered, I was very compelled. I read most of it in like two and a half days before, right at the moment when Willem died, I had I put it down for like a week. But like those <laughs> first 600 pages, I tore through and I was basically miserable the entire time. But I definitely did not want to stop reading and I got angry when I had to stop reading and it definitely affected me. But that doesn't seem like liking exactly. But it's a kind of, it's a literary impact that this book had on me. Yeah, it had an impact on me too emotionally and it it I, I wasn't really able to read it in public when I got to the most emotional parts mm-hmm. because I'm a fundamentally limited man and would start <laughs> crying on subways and, and being really sad. That said, when I got to the end of it I felt like I had wasted time. I felt like I would have rather read seven hundred twenty pages of something else. What about you, Katie? I'm still trying to decide. I mean again it was wrenching and upsetting. I can just echo what all of you said. There's a quality to it of psychological intimacy, even if it's not psychological realism, that really worked on me. So it was a singular experience, I'll say that. And to the extent that you don't read a lot of enormous Dickensian novels that end up concluding there is no hope, it always gets worse, sometimes the best thing to do is just die. Um, So sure, like that is pretty revolutionary, so... Read it if yeah. you want to be sad. Laura? I can't remember the last time I've had such a sort of complicated relationship to a book where I was riveted. I couldn't wait to come home and read it, and I found it deeply unpleasant to be in the company of this book, and yet I couldn't stop reading it. And now that it's over, I'll miss it, and yet I was so frustrated by it and found it emotionally manipulative at almost every turn. One thing that was kind of... Uh, that made me respect the book was that even this wasn't a book where things happened and you were like, it just felt so implausible or the sort of the, the, the pacing was off or the, the dialogue wasn't quite stacking up. Like things were relayed quite plausibly. And even when they felt frustrating, you could kind of you could see what she was going for. You could sort of understand the what was motivating it, you know, narratively or thoroughly. And that's a rare quality in a book, especially a book of this length. It was amazing to me to read that she wrote this in 18 months. Yeah. Like this feels like a book that someone fussed over for 10 years. Yep. And it's 700 pages long, but it's not like I thought, oh, someone could have really cut 200 pages out of this. It is that length and it is crafted at that length and it has a very specific goal and it works towards that goal to a focused extent that is like upsetting as you're reading Mm -hmm. it. But nothing feels accidental. Agree. It really is amazing to me, though, the extent to which this has become like a word of mouth phenomenon and the extent to which people sort of echoing the disparity in our responses to it tell their friends, this book made me cry for days 
you have to read it. Like that's yeah. a fascinating response. And I don't exactly have that response, but yet I will still tell people, yeah, you should probably read this book. Like you, it's singular and without being pleasurable. And that is rare, I think. I don't think that books typically go for that these days. There's a kind of lurid immediacy to it. And I think like when something can be that immediate, that present to you, you stop and take notice. It is more real to you in the interval that you're reading than your life. And sometimes extremes do that for us. Like sometimes that kind of suffering can be more real to you than your life. And that's an achievement. Suffering's like torture porn, but for suffering. Yeah. And again, but you're right, torture porn. Like that's the part of it that creeps me out. It felt sort of in love with that part of him too. Yeah. I've been actively not recommending it to people. <laughs> I've been telling people not to read it. Oh, so you've that's been anti-recommending it. It's not just yeah. not recommending yeah. it. I spend almost every day not recommending it to people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. This was infinitely more pleasurable than actually reading A Little Life, but equally interesting. So uh, thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank thanks, you. everybody. A program note. Our next audiobook club selection is Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff. Read it and join us for our discussion in December. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store, and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Slate's Audiobook Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Dan Coyce, Laura Bennett, and Andrew Kahn, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.